The title of the story is The Astonishing Good Fortune of Marigold Castor. Londoners complain, but there's something to be said for the flatmate. Suffering together can make a hovel low rent, only in the colloquial sense, a measure more bearable. Sharing a bedraggled Kennington bedsit, Mary Gold Castor and I had recently graduated from London Film School, whose prestige had mattered far more on the way in than on the way out. We traded 40 grand in debt for an MA that, unless we capitalized on it pronto, would age badly and make us look pathetic. That debt was stiffer for our classmates because Marigold and I had both won BAFTA scholarships. If only 10K, the grants still marked us as promising to our generational betters. Marigold and I recognized each other. We were ambitious, full of ourselves, terrified and never planning to admit as much, good at putting on a brave face, Marigold especially. She was blonde, scrawny, and energetic, with papery-skinned good looks that would age no better than our M.A. Its very fleeting nature at 27 made her prettiness more poignant. By contrast, I had good bones. While blokes often overlooked me, dark-haired, sallow, prone to a wary expression, my face would go the distance. Film is a famously collaborative medium, and in that sense, Marigold wasn't cut out for it. When we weren't doing some dismal runner job sloshing coffee for another period shoot on Trinity Church Square, jobs that were meant to help us climb the cinematic ladder and didn't. Marigold and I feverishly sent our student, out, student work out to festivals all over Europe. Yet information about obscure screenings in Croatia or Estonia flowed all one way. Marigold was effusively encouraging, but she was as generous with adjectives as she was stingy with the practical leg up. Yet proximate competition can hone your edge. Maybe we used each other, but in a good way. Besides, this is my story so I can be frank. Marigold was more likable than I, with a bouncy positivism that expressed itself in the buoyancy of her bobbed hair. She was the far more devious networker. Somehow, she knew everyone. Her deflective surface of sunniness was so suspiciously unbroken that I sometimes wondered whether underneath churned a maelstrom of bitterness and depression. But most people are happy to accept a bright, undemanding facade of optimism and goodwill at face value. Never taking no for an answer, Marigold was a fearsome powerhouse of determination. And those were the people who made it in the end right. But I had the chops. I was more original than she was, and I was more talented. There. If that sounds arrogant, sue me. What I remember most about Marigold 
was the way she'd round on a point about a peculiarity of the current dating scene, say. And just as she seemed about to observe something noteworthy, she'd curl away and launder the thought into something lame. You know, when you're in your 20s, it's the time to blah, blah, blah. Nothing you could take to the bank. Once I'd picked up the pattern, I twigged. We both had aspirations to direct our own screenplays, since, you know, when you're in your 20s, you think you're a one-man band. And she didn't want to fork out creative content for free. She guarded her every impression like money to keep you from stealing her ideas. You could call it a vanity, but it was more like hoarding. What made the curve to deliberate inconsequence especially remarkable was her willingness, her willingness to be a crashing bore just so long as she kept her precious perceptions to herself. Naturally, a regular theme at the flat was our exclusion from the soaring housing market, though prices then would soon seem cheap. So imagine my surprise when Marigold announced while doing the washing up one evening that I'd soon need a new flatmate because she was buying her own place. How can you manage that? I asked, bewildered. With a mortgage, silly, she said gaily. But she'd kept her back to me, tossing the tautological explanation at the sink. A bank would no more have given me a mortgage than served me tea with the queen. Marigold was adopted and couldn't have borrowed from biological parents she'd never known. The divorced mom who raised her was mental and so skint that her adopted only child grew up on sandwiches of white flora, or so Marigold claimed. My flatmate may not have been a liar, but her stories were too funny, and they too told too well. Even if the tales were true, I bet being abandoned at a motorway service area as an eight-year-old wasn't funny at the time. If I pushed her to explain how she could suddenly afford to buy London real estate when the month before she couldn't afford name brand laundry detergent, I'd only have invited that curving away. So I let the puzzle be. She shifted out swiftly, using professional removal men, despite the paltriness of her possessions. Thereafter, she invited me round to her house. House, not flat. And if it wasn't actually in Islington, it might as well have been. The flashy new build had pristine appliances, gardens, a balcony. When I stopped by, she'd already kitted out the kitchen with matching retro canisters from the Bermondsey Antiques Market. The sitting room shone with framed collectors' movie posters. Citizen Kane, Casablanca. I told you she wasn't creative. Myself feeling weirdly polite, 
I had to hand it to her for pulling off her chirpy house tour with no evident trace of embarrassment. Gallantly, I swallowed the observation that two spare bedrooms, now a yoga studio and a study with a desk lamp from the design museum, might have allowed for a resumption of our cohabitation far more comfortable than sharing my dump in Kennington. Three weeks earlier, we'd have gulped paint stripper plonk from jam jars. But that night, Marigold neglected the rot gut I'd brought, preferring a bottle whose austere label argued for courteous sips from the crystal stemware. Instead of crisps, she served aged Gouda biscuits from Waitrose. While my astringent disposition usually paired well with a 399 Chianti, I was seldom a proper whinge bag. Yet I found myself lamenting a catalog of woes. I had to trim scenes from my latest short for being too costly, but the cut-down script was incoherent. Ignominiously, I just got a rejection from a festival in Bulgaria. Mary Gold listened with intense sympathy, brow pinched in a fetching frown. I rescued the evening with unkind imitations of my downer new flatmate, but I kicked myself once I left. I bleated like a supplicant. I had no house. Now I had no self-respect. Whether from a sudden con the sudden contrast in our circumstances or the mystery behind the divergence, Mary Gold and I saw each other with decreasing frequency. So when I first saw a poster for a new film directed by Mary Gold Castor on a Northern Line escalator, I was so stunned that I forgot to shuffle to the right. Go-getters shoved past me on foot with a glare. You may or may not remember that dramatic comedy, but you couldn't have missed the hoardings and the bus adverts at the time. The tube campaign was massive. The same poster swished by every 20 feet as my trains pulled from their platforms, like flip books whose image stayed still. It took me a while to see that movie, despite not exactly hoping to like it. I thought it was okay, not terrible or anything, but not remarkable either. So however had a film with a young, inexperienced director attached attracted enough backing to get the thing shot and widely distributed with a publicity budget to do the Titanic proud. The reviews were bland, three stars. It wasn't a production you could hate. But the public was accustomed to mediocre movies shoved down their throats, so thought nothing of it. Then out of the blue, Mary Gold asked me round for dinner again because she had amazing news. We'd not seen each other for nearly two years, but the standard social hiatus in London was often longer. Doubtless her amazing news was having raised the funds for another enthralling blockbuster. By then I'd assumed a front row seat in the larger cinema of her life, riveted by the spectacle of my Marigold 
going from strength to strength. I was driven by whatever's the opposite of schadenfreude, the opposite of watching a car crash. I showed up out of masochistic curiosity. In private, I used Marigold's astounding good fortune to goad myself, and refreshing my indignation might be motivating. I'd fingers in pies, but had yet to pull out any plums. In a sleek white sheath she'd never have found unstained at her usual charity shop, she served four-ounce steaks, one small potato each, and a salad. Rising female directors watched their figures. Finally, she introduced, ready? I swear this'll blow your mind. Thumbnail. When Marigold was removed from her biological mother as a baby, she couldn't have known that she had an older brother. Also adopted, the brother had hired a private investigator to track down his natural family. Alas, their real mother had died a few years earlier, but he did find Marigold, his only remaining blood kin. The estranged siblings had just reunited the week before. All very touching, except that Marigold's story didn't, stories didn't incline towards Disney. The big reveal was who the brother was. To avoid distraction, I'll reserve his identity for now. You'd only hunger for any insider tittle-tattle I scavenged over pots of lemon posset. Suffice it to say that the story was simply too fantastic to be made up. His profile is on a scale that would preclude anyone's masquerading as his long-lost sister. But while I did believe the story, I didn't believe its timing. I don't know if it was rehearsed, but her presentation was certainly shaped like a wad of sticky dough kneaded and rounded into a loaf pan. At crucial junctures, as when she disclosed her brother's name, she turned away, just as she had when citing her mortgage. Her astonishment was performed, and rather poorly. She wasn't amazed anymore. She'd known her brother's identity for long enough to grow blasé about it. Perhaps the news was about to go public, and she was rushing to tell her mates before they read about it in Metro. I was well-behaved, always depressing with friends. I observed how welcome a sane, rational relative must have been when her adoptive mother was certifiable. I didn't fish for celebrity gossip. I made sure to feign appreciation for her film. I enthused over her next project, about whose premise she was so evasive that I couldn't tell if she was about to shoot a Cameron Diaz rom-com or a reworking of Hotel Rwanda. Yet on the tube home, I fumed. A divine invisible hand had plucked my flatmate from obscurity 
pipping her down in a shiny three-bedroom the way girls position their dolls, and bought her a whole feature film deal for her birthday while the rest of us settled for cards. Had you asked me then, I'd have extracted the lesson that professional success is a big fix. But life is so much more interesting than that. I think I'll withhold the title of my own first feature, which might it be as distracting as exposure of Marigold's legendary sibling. Although the debut seemed overdue to me, I nevertheless qualified as a new voice bursting, as they say, on the scene. With the rising appetite for women directors, funding the second was easier, the third easier still. I'm super excited about the new one. Marigold's second feature bombed. Keeping up with her output ever since has been easy. There hasn't been any. Even Fairy Godbrother couldn't buy her box office receipts attractive to producers, a fresh eye, or saleable content. I keep coming back to her hoarding of her observations about the world, even in casual conversation. Perhaps in Marigold's view, one is born with a finite number of ideas, just as girls are born with a finite number of eggs. But I've generally let fly with anything that comes to mind, because I knew there'd always be more where that came from. In guest lectures at London Film School, I tell students, never save your ideas. Maybe Marigold's genetic ace in the hole gave her an unfair advantage when younger. I certainly squandered vast amounts of energy on resenting that woman, yearning to swap places with her. But Mary Goldcaster is now mostly known for being you-know-who's sister. That kind of fame? She can have it. Meanwhile, I've got a movie to make.